Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Spiritual traditions in and of themselves develop so many helpful competencies. Uh, For example, the spiritual traditions of Native American ghosts and sun dances, uh, druidic magic and rituals, Hindu, Jainist, and Buddhist meditations, among so many, not only can produce states that allow us to step outside of the limitations of our physical capabilities and the context. Um, It can allow us to step outside of the routine justifications and rationalizations of our life. It can allow us to step outside of the limiting framing thoughts about ourselves. It can allow us to invest uh, everyday activities with a sense of sacredness and importance. It allows us to develop and maintain homeostasis, which means uh, a state of calm, while we're adapting to the changing conditions around us, especially in such as uh, the period right now of a pandemic. But um, I suppose what I'd most like to talk to us today is about the importance of transcendent practices which allow us to step outside of the mundane um, uh, perceptions and justifications and narratives of our life and allow us to uncover underlying unifying, not only underlying unifying drives of natural life and which allow us in turn to develop bonds with others. Uh, But more importantly, allow us to rise above our actual settings of time and place and perceive new possibilities outside of our self-oriented perspectives. In this manner, we are not only broader, more holistic, but it encourages Uh, what one great psychologist, Emmons, uh, in his book, The Psychology of Ultimate Concerns, wrote about as engendering a vast interpersonal commitment to others. And that's, I think, the highest, one of the most adaptive and helpful competencies of spiritual practice is that it allows us to step outside of the very narrow framing and perspective of life and allows us to see ourselves as interconnected and a part of. So how does it, how does spirituality work? Um, To answer that, I need to take a little bit of a step back and talk a little bit about one of my favorite topics, along with attachment and polyvagal theory and neuropsychological themes, but also, uh, Uh, the bilateral brain. Um, We do, of course, have two uh, consciousness and mental function is uh, broadly split between two hemispheres, left and right. The dominant hemisphere of most people's brain is the left, and I'll be assuming that uh, for this talk, we'll just use the, the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere has a very, is by adult life largely guiding our conscious volitional behaviors. The left brain is, um, foc- has narrowly focused attention. It tends to break up the world around us into objects. If you think of, uh, this is a famous example by a neuropsychologist Ian McGilchrist, if you think of a bird. Uh, looking for food, the hemisphere of the brain that allows the bird to spot seeds or edible uh, berries or whatever from the ground is its left brain because the left hemisphere is what focuses our attention on objects. It doesn't take in the entire setting. It just focuses on objects that we can use. 
in Homo sapiens, the left hemisphere allows us to represent and interpret and categorize the world around us in language-based distinctions and uh, concepts. So it's in in the left hemisphere that we take our experience, we turn it into a narrative, a story with ideas such as today was a good day or a terrible day, Uh, this person was helpful or unhelpful, that situation was um, unique or normal. And all of that splitting up experience into categories or distinctions is entirely the domain of left hemispheric thought. To do this, to represent life in an ongoing uh, stream of ideas, the brain has to do something that's called sensory gating. It has to essentially filter out a lot of the sensory experience of the world around us because thought and inner narration requires sustaining an enormous amount of attention and also neural resources, especially acetylcholine and glutamate and dopamine and so forth. So to, to create an ongoing, you know, uh, stream of thought, we have to essentially mute the richness of the sensory landscape around us. Finally, the left brain uh, not only mutes the richness of sensory experience via the thalamus, but it also creates a sense of self as a unique, definable identity. You know, I'm Josh Korda, Buddhist pastor. Um, I have a background in in academic background in psychology as well as uh, Buddhist practices. I'm a writer and so forth. You know, so that idea of who I am is a story in words. And it's uh, when we engage in our inner autobiography, our language-based narrative of who we are, we're creating an identity that is unique different from others. Uh, The left brain concept of self is not interested in commonality. It's interested in distinction or difference because that's its job. It looks through the world around us and sorts out objects that are helpful. It also looks in terms of the mind and says that thought is the most important element of mental experience. And it looks for elements of identity that distinguish us from others. The more we think of ourselves, therefore, the less connected, the more isolated we feel. Thought by its very nature, being hosted, ongoing narrative thought, by its very nature, hosted by predominantly the left hemisphere, is by its nature something that distinguishes or isolates objects. It doesn't look for commonalities or connective themes. And the left finally is future-oriented. It solves the issues of life, our fears and anxieties, via the attainment of resources consuming the world around us and accumulating capital. Now, in contrast, the subdominant hemisphere, the right brain is largely unconscious, automatic. It's less based in language. It only uses very simple, open-ended words at most. It tends to be embodied. It has far more synaptic connections to uh, somatosensory regions. It's far more aware of body states and also uses the body to communicate. Uh, The right brain has a self that's not constructed in an autobiography, but rather the um, felt ongoing sensations and emotions and impulses. So 
in psychology, ever since the work of Carl Rogers, they've contrasted the self-concept, which is a story in language about who we are, versus the felt self, which is what, am, what do I feel when such and such events happen? And that feeling, those, that flow of impulses, body states, um, consciousness, is the right brain sense of who we are. The right brain is timeless. It has an unending sense of now. Things, there's no concept of the future really in the right brain. That's left hemispheric construction. The right brain though, of important emotional events from the past are still anticipated as happening now. So it has this sense of timelessness and the right hemisphere solves the issues of our existence, like safety, uh, through not through the left brain way, which is through accumulation, uh, but by securing attachments to others, to one's sense of home, to one's tribal uh, clan, and also to one's sense of one's uh, embodied feelings. So safety and the primary issues of existence are solved in very, very different ways, depending upon whether we are listening to our thoughts or listening to our embodied feelings. So if you haven't guessed, um, spiritual practices integrate right brain signals, which are very often gated out when we're lost in thought. They integrate right brain signals, emotional, physiological impulses into our awareness. Sometimes uh, pro the most predominant way it does this is by moving into the spaces between thought, by opening up room between the ongoing inner chatter. Uh, and in so doing, in spiritual practices, moving into the space between thought, it bypasses our language-based self-stories, which happen to be uh, the, one of the primary sources of so much of our suffering in life. There was a wonderful clinical study, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind, that shows that when people are engaged in thought wandering, where they're not paying attention to what they're doing, are the most unhappy times of our life. Uh, simply paying attention to what we're doing, uh, task positive consciousness is so much more pleasant. What the paper doesn't go into, but subsequently you can do the research, is that default mode operation, thought wandering, is synonymous with self-oriented thought. It uses the same circuit, the ventral medial, and it triggers the amygdala, the fear threat detection circuit of the brain. So in moving between thought by focusing awareness on ongoing sensations or sounds or phrases, it creates a far greater right hemispheric appreciation of the spacious global open present that surrounds us. It allows us to step outside of the very narrowly framed um, self-oriented thought patterns, justifications and rationalizations of our mundane life. Uh, and it allows us to view experience from a profoundly different perspective where we are not unique, not alone, not isolated, but in terms of how connected we are, how interdependent we are with the world around us. This, and it should be noted that the Buddha taught that both perspectives were necessary. From the very beginning, the Buddha taught that the 
lokia, the mundane, mundane path of material, doing, you know, getting things done in the world, living up to one's responsibilities, had to coexist with the lokatura, the transcendent, the the spiritual practices that allowed us to integrate a perspective outside of the obligations and responsibilities and rationalizations and uh, to-do lists of our life. Um, but this ability to step outside of the ongoing language streams is so important. Very often, for example, when people have to make big decisions, should I move to a different place or should I get a different job or should I uh, change vocation or should, should I uh, uh, so forth and so on. If we try to figure out these, um, these, uh, these issues um, logically, all we'll do is fall into a materialist perspective, and that will not serve us. Um, on the other hand, if we visualize opportunities and just check how we feel, we are presented with a far more, um, uh, I think, uh, profound insight into how each choice um, can make us feel in our life. The second issue of spiritual practices is that it allows us to bypass inner chatter by focusing on embodied felt experience, bringing attention to uh, the input of the, the midbrain and the right hemisphere. When we have a sensory embodiment in life, we are grounded into the present in a way that changes profoundly the way we look at life. The more we engage or listen to the ongoing inner chatter, the ongoing narration in our, that, uh, that is sort of the voiceover of the brain, that left hemispheric story almost invariably creates the sense that the present moment is lacking that we're somehow missing something, that we are um, incomplete, that there's always, because the left brain is future-oriented, it always says that there's this moment in the future where um, all the things we need will become available and we can finally relax and finally arrive in life. On the other hand, when we step outside of the story and go into the body, into the felt experience of breathing and uh, the felt somatic markers that ex that events our affects and our emotional life, the this embodied life doesn't orient us towards this imagined future that is better than the present. It actually focuses our attention to what is available to us now and reconnects us with this, this immense sense of appreciation of what we already have being in a breathing body. Embodied life also doesn't mute the vibrant sensory world around us, the colors, the richness of sounds, the uh, spaciousness of the moment becomes far more open, important and real. Finally, uh, in this area, spiritual practice asks that we use our imagination, uh, including visualization. Buddhist practices, for example, not only Buddhist, but Buddhist practices uh, notably since the very beginning have had... Um, uh, practices that focus on keeping in mind images of the Buddha, images of devas, 
images of places where we have either experienced peace or uh, imaginative places, as well as images that help us transcend the specific time and location and setting that we're in. And so tonight's meditation, in fact, is going to be an ancient Buddhist practice that um, is uh, based on these transcendent images. Why is it that transcendent images and visualizations and imagination is so important? Well, uh, from early infancy, we experienced when we were first born this sense of jointedness, a symbiotic state where there's no self or other, there's no inside or out, there's just the sense of being connected to one's caregiver. It's a, a state where there's no anxiety or very little anxiety, where the infant feels a degree of, as Winnicott said, unlimited power and connection. Eventually, the mother inserts, uh, or the father inserts increasing delays of gratification. And if it's done too quickly, which is very often the case, there's this frustration state where the child uh, it too quickly moves into the realm of um, the external world, where we, have, we wind up in this neurotic, anxious state where we feel overwhelmed by others. We feel vulnerable, and we engage in this very false, inauthentic self to get our needs met. The external world, if we are introduced to it too abruptly, is overwhelming. And so to smooth the transition into this dualistic realm of now there's uh, a not me and a me, or there's this dualistic inside, outside, I'm here, everyone else is outside of me. Um, children are given what's called a transitional play space or, air, or area, as Winnicott called it, a realm that bridges the inside felt experience with the outside world. And the child plays creating these wonderful early narratives with toys and with objects where the child begins to make sense of the, its environment in this blended way. And this ability to interweave are, are the internal with the external and the felt with the objective is something that we need throughout all of our lives. It's something that we can never let go of, according to Winnicott. We need this sense of play and imagination. It allows us to gain confidence. It allows us to make sense of our life in a way that creates real meaning rather than simply parsing our life into the normal success or not success, failure, success narratives of the predominant culture. In play, imagination, um, it allows us to confidently step outside of the realm of ideas, future goals, socialization, and performance concerns, and allows us to have room where we can experience our authentic self, and also get in touch with consciousness as something that is not too identified with thought. Spiritual practice, by allowing us to step outside of narrative ideations that are self-oriented, which cause, which activate a lot of stress, and allowing us to have time where we're not framing life in terms of a story of ideas, such as this is good or bad, I'm successful or unsuccessful, I'm achieving things or I'm not, I'm, uh, I'm attractive or I'm unattractive, I'm uh, whatever. 
our spiritual practice completely transcends any of the ways we characterize ourselves, any of the ways that we contrast ourselves with others. It focuses our attention on the felt experience that actually builds a sense of connection with the natural world and with the non non-language-based, non-left hemispheric impulses of the subdominant hemisphere, which point us to a far different form of living. And for us, I think that is a wonderful alternative, or at least a wonderful addition to our lives as uh, ongoing human endeavors. So with that, I'm now going to lead us through a meditation practice that um, is um, uh, based on a 2,500-year-old practice. It's called the Kula Sunyata. And it's a meditation that allows us to engage not only in uh, stepping outside of the stream of thoughts that uh, we normally fixate our attention on, but it also allows us to use our imagination and connect with a very transcendent state of awareness. So I hope you uh, enjoyed that talk. And um, uh, get comfortable find a really comfortable seated position. If you'd like to lie down, you can do that. If not, you can just sit in any position that is conducive to ease. And um, if you'd like to support my work, everything I do is by donation as a Buddhist pastor. Uh, the Venmo is Dharma. D-H-A-R-M-A, punks, P-U-N-X, N-Y-C. So thank you for that. And now let's just find our comfortable position. The Kula Sunyata meditation actually starts with uh, the eyes open. And we just sit looking straight forward and just allow your mind to take in any of the sights around you that are associated with man-made objects, a room, a place. Right now I'm looking into the camera of a Mac laptop, so I'm seeing a man-made object. There's also light and so just allowing ourselves to situate ourselves in an environment that has no doubt objects made by people, chairs, perhaps a couch, table, window, uh, technology, and so forth, clothes. And then allow yourself to close your eyes. And as you close your eyes, bring still the sense of the man-made uh, into your awareness. And just start by visualizing in your mind, using your imagination, the city or the environment around you, if you're in a suburb or a rural environment, so visualize just all the man-made elements, the houses, the roads, cars, visualizing Uh, any other objects, street posts, signs, lights, objects that might be outdoors, 
buildings, shops. This, the Buddha called this recollection, recollection of the, the city or the village and Perhaps he started this meditation because it's the most familiar in many ways to the dominant hemisphere, which tends to focus on man-made objects. So the Buddha starts with this orientation to what we are most often aware of, the man-made objects and world around us. Just allow that to be there. And while you're holding in your mind an image of the world, allow your shoulders to drop and your belly to soften so that we're going to try to keep ourselves in a state of ease and comfort. long exhalations and again just allow the mind to be a realm of visualizations of the world of things objects buildings all that is artificial all that is man-made. Thank you. 
So let's now change the image in our mind. In the second part of this meditation, we move from all that is artificial to all that is natural. So see if you can visualize images of trees, nature, grass, all that is natural either nearby you or natural that you've experienced recently, bodies of water, mountains, sky, clouds, the earth of the ground, the rocks, twigs, leaves, And while you hold these images in your mind, see if there's a subtle shift in the quality of attention, in the feeling of your body. Very often shifting the images from what is artificial and man-made to the natural with some people just that subtle shift, moving, integrating information and images that we generally gate out of our awareness. We block, allowing them back in can be relaxing, soothing to visualize natural settings without any attention to anything man-made, just nature in and of itself.
So now moving on to the third theme of the meditation, just letting go of the natural objects around you and just bring attention to the earth itself. Interestingly, for the third part of this meditation, the Buddha just said, bring awareness to the earth, the solidity, the the feeling of being on ground, being on a spaceship, we could say, moving through the cosmos around the sun. Buddha said, just bear in mind the earth in and of itself without reference to anything artificial or even the signs of nature that grow from it, just the earth as a ground, a home on which we live out our lives. Feeling this connection between ourself and the earth. So letting go now of the reflection or the recollection of the earth. And at this point, the practice becomes more transcendent, more uh, open in our imagination. The Buddha says, bring to mind the vast amount of space that surrounds us. So no longer aware of the artificial elements of the world, no longer aware of the natural elements of the world, no longer aware of the earth as the ground upon which we sit or stand, but now just inclining the mind to an awareness of the space the ongoing limitless space in all directions, left, right, above, below, in front and back, allowing your body to soften into this space and just use the limitless capabilities of your mind to sense what it would be like to move through this vast openness because this space that we're recollecting 
right now is in your mind. Your mind is in this space. This space is in your mind. No longer any sense of inside or outside. Allowing consciousness as it were. And how you do this is up to you. It's a matter of play, curiosity, and imagination. See if you can sense your awareness or consciousness itself to expand into the limitless realm of space that you can reflect on. Limitless space, limitless consciousness, no boundaries, no longer any sense of the mind being inside of the body. Just allowing the sense of one's mind to expand, to stretch, to the very lengths that you can imagine the universe around you, no longer believing the mind is situated in the body, the mind now transcending the narrow, small confines of the head No inside or outside. No longer any stories. No longer any categories. Just unending openness. Nothing to contract from. Nothing impinging. And 
For the last few minutes of this meditation, the Buddha concludes with meditation without theme. Just allowing your mind to be open, spacious, no longer needing to bear anything in mind. Just allow whatever state your mind finds most restful, most easeful, keeping it as open and limitless as you can. So thank you for your practice. You can support my Buddhist pastoral work uh, either by Venmo or from the uh, PayPal on the Dharma Punks NYC sites. And I hope to see you again next week.